Welcome back to Hearness, Contemporary Art Practices for Connecting Body, Place and Space. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Bring-Lovett, and for this episode, we are delighted to have spoken to Dr. Jacqueline Drinkhall, who has a most intriguing practice examining telepathy through contemporary art in performance, installation, curation and writing. Jacqueline's works often engage with telepathic communication, UFOs, seances and telepathic headsets to connect deeply with one another and the places she's in, as well as engage with broader social and environmental issues. Jacqueline has been prolific in this field, practising for the last 30 years. She has held numerous solo shows, curated many exhibitions, won many awards and is widely published. Most recently, Jacqueline has been working with Warren Needich, an activist neuroaesthetics in Berlin, on writings, lectures, new works, as well as curating exhibitions and screenings around the theme of art and telepathy. Currently based in the Central Tablelands area of New South Wales, Jacqueline often works with many artists from the Blue Mountains and Central West area on these international exhibitions, as well as working in a collaborative format locally. Jacqueline actually has an upcoming solo show at Way Out Art Space next year and is planning some more group shows to iterate her activist neuroaesthetics, telepathy and new labour exhibition and film screening events in Australia. Links to all of these works and those discussed in this episode can be found on hearness.org. The sound for this episode, which will the sound for this episode, which you will hear a shorter piece at the beginning and the full piece at the end, is from Jacqueline's Weatherman Underwater video, which was made in 2010. This is related to her larger ongoing project called Weatherman UFOlogy. The video performance explores telepathic communion, supernatural wonder and L-flight. Viewers are invited to meditate upon the spectral qualities of the underwater environment and future agents of world change. for coming to talk to us on Hearness. I'm, I'm really so excited because for me, I've been following your work for a long time. And for me, you're really a pioneer in obviously your own niche area of, of, of art practice and research, but I think also for encouraging people to really push the boundaries in what we talk about with art and what we can do with art for, you know, the, the sake of, um, humanity really and so I'm just so really honoured to have you here I must say that. Oh thanks Sarah I've had some really good conversations with you and um, good experiences working with you. Oh thank you I thought it might be good to start with just to give the listeners an idea of your background what brought you into art practice in the beginning and, and kind of what made you decide to become an artist. Yeah 
Well, I was always enjoying art making as a little kid and I won a prize in kindergarten and then kids paid me to do their homework for the, like their drawings for them. And, um, and then I was ducks of year nine and then I just decided I wanted to be an artist prematurely. Somehow, you know, with grades down, still got into uni for art school. I think it's a fascinating practice because you you have skills in across many different types of medium, painting, installation, performance, sculpture as well, um, and then also in the academic work that you do. There's a lot of skill there, technical skill, but also the conceptual aspect of your work is, I find, really intriguing, especially in relation to this idea of here-ness with connecting, with connections, like really deep connections between the body, place and space. I think for me, when I read about you doing the, um, the early workshop with Marina Abramovich, the Cleaning the House project, and a way of kind of training to become aware of a heightened awareness of your own yourself and your consciousness, I guess, was that the beginning for you as a, as a, as a way into this field of work? Yeah, I think also with my premature decision to become an artist I was also getting interested in Buddhism and I think with the heinous which is a, a word that you know I associate with you I hadn't really heard of I heard of nowness but it's almost like both seem to be um practices seem to be anchored in the body and place and space and the now is kind of like also more into the time and you know the time of the now uh, but there's that aspect within Buddhism um I think you know, an interest in the now. And that was something that Marina Bromovic worked with, cultivating sense of now or the presence, you know, present, being present. Um, it was an exploration of extreme. So we fasted for five days and didn't speak. So it's typically extreme. Yeah, so we were in the south of France and she talked a lot about telepathy and I think it really seeped in. And I was already weaving the telecommunications wire and thinking that that was a little bit like telepathic something I did that was a little akin to a meditation and other times it was something I did to get to build the object while I was watching television and so there was all these kind of telemedias and telepathy starting to kind of get into my imagination but yeah she really talked a lot about telepathy during clean house project and we experienced it too because you become hypersensitive and without speaking and fasting for so long and you're in a tight cult-like group right <laughs> so um you're reading each other's muscle gestures hypersensitively and you're doing the same thing at the same time going for a walk in the forest at the same time doing yoga at the same time and practices like yoga and chanting together um building up you know enormous big hilarious oms are just full of <laughs> telepathy aesthetics so, you know and then she got us to do exercises like staring at one another to try and ectoplasm so they're really explicit exercises can, can you describe for uh, the audience what ectoplasm is oh, it's what apparently what happens when spirit mediums get in contact with ghosts they produce this goo out of their mouth and sometimes it's like a, a gauze mesh or sometimes it's just like like a slime yeah 
And my nose ran because if you stare at someone for like half an hour, you get a lot of <laughs> your eyes water. <laughs> your nose runs because you're in pain. So as far as I know, it was just snot. And <laughs> were you allowed to blink? No, no, that was the other thing. Like, no, no. So yeah. How fascinating. I guess the the ideas around telepathy that you say, you know, as you were already working on with the telecommunications wire um, and kind of, I guess, building upon there. And then that you went on to do a whole thesis on telepathy and contemporary art. Yeah, and that wasn't just because of Marina Abramovic and the weaving, because there was Christopher Dishko who I was studying with at the time, and he had a course in cyberspace. Yeah, he's Polish, but, you know, working in Canada or America. And he called it Zebraspas. <laughs> and um, so I was reading, he gave me the book, his book, copy of the book, and I bought a copy myself. It was Avatar Ronald's The Telephone Book for Technology, Schizophrenia and Electric Speech. And there's lots of telepathy there. So telephone was invented at the same time. Telepathy was invented in 1882. So that's when the word telepathy was coined. And there's all these connections between technology and, you know, other worlds. I think there's an experience, and I'm looking more into this um, at the moment, where telepathy just goes way beyond that. (laughs) People in all cultures have these experiences. And, yeah, so I'm really interested in looking way back to when we first became human. I'm really interested in how shamanism has a role in the human development of art and telepathy. I think other animals probably have kind of special senses as well and experiences of telepathy, but there's something quite peculiar about humans and their capacity for higher consciousness, which is a bit leading into your interest. Um, Yeah, so I think the work that I'm doing with ArtBrain looking at cognition and the brain as kind of also, you know, I'm looking more at technologies, modern technologies and how they're impacting and changing the brain. But I'm also looking back in time to kind of more archeological, anthropological questions of what makes us human. What is it about art, you know, the earliest art that has a telepathic, magical, shamanistic kind of quality. So, and what is telepathy? And how does it change when you bring in a new technology? So there's this constant updating. So you see cultural progressions and you see one telepathy die out as another, you know, comes in, you get the more, you can see that in cyber culture, instant messaging telepathy in virtual worlds. And then, you know, you get Facebook saying, oh, but we need, we need telepathy (laughs) that's um, beyond instant message and involves, you know, cortical implants or something <laughs> so sharks you know might have electromagnetic kind of powers and bats have sonic acoustic sensors that have you know if we were to have those powers we'd be kind of telepathic you know but there's always been technological changes since i mean that te- technology is also part of the human problem and the thing that makes us human is our capacity for technology so that question of technology and what is human is also the question of what is telepathy like if this is something that we've always had and we and we we have now um but it's probably not in our conscious awareness because of everything else that we've got in there um i just find it fascinating that it's something that's that's always been there right well of course i get when you think about it the way you're explaining it 
um, it makes perfect sense to me, do you know, that it was always there and it was part of being human and, and the kind of technologies that we've used to communicate um, and, and kind of do it for us um, rather than kind of going deeper within ourselves and our consciousness and being able to mine down to really connect to ourselves to do that. We're kind of externally creating this stuff to do it for us and it, like it validates it if you see, you know, it registered on some scientific equipment or your brain being wired up, it validates that um, that not everybody has the, you know, this, the sceptics wouldn't necessarily have the capacity to um, believe in such subtle frequencies and the power of frequencies. Yeah, like I love the sceptics, like um, totally a believer and a sceptic all at once because I really do think that telepathy is something that is part of communications, it's part of media. So you can look at people like John Durham Peters' communications theory and there's bits of telepathy in there and, and David Perush. Yeah, so I, I do kind of like look to theory as well to kind of explore this. And, um, but I, yeah, I don't think it's just a spiritual thing. I think it's just a very everyday, like, like we're talking. So um, there was a, a discussion recently between uh, Reza Negrastani and Warren Nidic about telepathy. And Reza said, it's just basic linguistics it's communication and yeah it's a semiotic problem because we work with our brains but also this more immaterial thing of, of language so that's as soon as you've got language technology a human brain you've got telepathy <laughs> yeah and um it's difficult to talk about because it has become it, it is just so you know weird and wonderful and basically we've just got to get on with um, inventing the next communication term you know on device and it's got to be you know not it can't just all be telepathy you know the pen writing with the pen can't just be a telepathy it's got to be a pen and it's you know writing with a computer can't just be telepathy but you know um, it really is one of those I think it's like it's like the AR it is just one of those things which is just so subtle and it's just so part of what makes us human but what about like what about i guess i'm thinking of the disco ball gaze from 2014 that durational performance that you did at oxford art factory where i mean i think it was in the evening was it and people were in the club you were in an amazing box oh no it's just pretty flat there's no i was no special no I'm not in a special box i was just on a chair it was just really dark and there was like a my um uh, crystal ball was a disco ball so there's a bit of dazzle in there <laughs> and there was a few kind of flare, lens flares it's interesting that you thought I was in a box and floating because I had a, a big um, red velvet tablecloth made to just create the space so it was really simple it was just everyday table with a beautiful red velvet cloth over it which hid my feet and the feet of anyone who sat down next to me from the camera or from the viewers because there was a there's a glass wall. Most most people kind of were viewing us from the glass wall, but you could open a door and come in and sit with me. And I just did this thing with my hands outstretched as if I was kind of like reading into the ball and had this energy kind of flowing from the, the disco ball. So for someone who really like loves dancing in a disco, it was pretty still performance but there was a bit of movement it wasn't a tableau total tableau we want and viewers did come in it's really uncanny 
the amount of people that just wanted to copy me. So they'd sit there, they'd do the same thing with their hands. They'd just kind of start, you know, after a while, they'd start to kind of stretch out their fingers and they'd be sitting there together <laughs> reading the ball silently. <laughs> oh, so was it really like um, you were doing a psychic reading for, like, were you talking no no I didn't speak at all um yeah and some of them spoke to me but I just persistently just didn't say anything and I guess some of the performance training that I guess I'd done with Marina Bravik was informing that practice of not speaking and did you feel like did you feel any like telepathy or anything from the other person or other people when you were doing yeah there just would be a connection you develop a rhythm and a number of people who were willing to enter into this kind of contagion of you know spreading out the hands like a mystic gathering messages but I didn't I would it's not like I really felt like I knew what someone was saying thinking or something um you know you know it wasn't like a, a radio message or anything that would come into my brain I guess that's a, I mean I think that's a fascinating thing with a practice like yours that sits really on the edge there because like you're kind of looking at it thinking is she really doing this or is it a performance of what it would look like if she was doing this or is it some you know some kind of mixture of both do you know and and she doing this I guess that's what um one of the questions I had about the thesis, because I know that you were saying how the idea of telepathy was a subject that was buried in the arts um, for a long time. And I guess because for me, it seems like such an accessible avenue for people to talk about things like this and experience things like this that they wouldn't normally get to talk about or experience. And there's such power in that. Do you have anything to say around that line between, is it real, is it not real? Why was it buried for so long in, in the arts, do you think? Oh, I think it is real and it isn't real. It just, it, you know, it just is, it's just one of those complex things that is full of co- contradictions. And there's just moments where it is real for someone more than it isn't real for another person in a different context. And, um, and they're both valid and, you know, really is getting back to the whole idea of language. There is a potential, there is a fiction element in it as well there's um and I guess that's why Peter Hill my former teacher was kind of interested in telepathy and we've done a bit of work together because it is a kind of like a super fiction it is kind of super semiotic it's you know it is anchored in real things like our capacity for language and our capacity for empathy and kindness and you know a whole range of different affects and um, feelings and experiences is you know not just positive you know it can you know pops up in the darkest parts of human experience too it's really quite it's quite scary it, it's something for you associate with psychosis yeah and or you know cultish societies and the dark side of that drugs as well and hallucinations so and you know that's got positive and negative bits to it as well I think it's a really um, real thing it's just kind of got many dimensions to it and it's like I can't say I'm coming from it as someone who has a religious upbringing and you know thinks that this about it or you know that I've got a psychoanalytic training because I look at it from so many different angles and many dif- disciplines 
I think for my thesis, I focused on women artists and it really, it popped up in feminism um, and issues of affect and the body. It popped up in science, in, in, in quantum science and um, cognitive science as well. So there's been people, brain scientists wondering about, is it something facilitated by microtubules in the brain or is it something that's related to the empathy part of the brain? Is it something related to our capacity for language and vision, which is an overlapping part of the brain. I find that area, that quite compelling actually, that area is really interesting, but it could just be our capacity for attention as well, which is a totally different part of the brain because, you know, hypnosis and can trigger kind of telepathic phenomena and attention, you know, your, your attention to something and your focus on something can kind of create a kind of, binding with with it that's um, and feedback that you know um, might be kind of telepathic <laughs> yeah I think that's a really interesting way to, to describe it and then with like perhaps leading into thinking about because you've done a lot of work um, in different locations and I'm thinking well firstly I was thinking of the work that you did in Banff the eco dome in Banff but before that or as part of that series you had a solstice telepathy I think it's called solstice telepathy, where you actually had two people joined together by the fascinators, which I, I thought was a great work. Because up to that point, I've only I'd only seen you working with the individual one. Was that the first time you joined two together? Banff was the time when they were put together with an umbilical cord, and their eyes were connected. So it was kind of a little bit like a play on the virtual reality headset. But when you put them on, you didn't. <laughs> whole bunch of um wire mesh of course you couldn't really see down the tubes and that was performed on a solstice event with a full moon that's right yeah it was it was a good experience we did a little seance beforehand because it was we we're exploring energy and there were a lot of people environmentalists um environmental artists and theorists working on energy theory there i think there were a few people that did kind of little quick projects and mine was to just everyone gather around in a circle and commune again with the stretched out finger thing <laughs> with energy objects so everyone put in an energy object there was like a pen there was a phone there was all sorts of little bits of stuff thrown in and we all just communed around these objects for a while and um it's a little bit of tense intense at one point and a few giggles but what do people say to you about these like these seance experiences what kinds of things have people said to you afterwards about how they felt or what what it was like for them yeah people like they don't know if I how you know how witchy I am or you know why I'm doing this so they kind of want to know where I'm at or they kind of why we why do you want to do this and so there's a chance for dialogue about art and you know contagion and telepathy and collaboration and and how these kind of things overlap does anyone have any like really far out experiences all right yeah has anyone yeah summed up a spirit uh, no no not that I know <laughs> never know maybe they're not telling you yeah before we go on to talk about the kind of broader implications of this type of work which is which is just so valuable um, I just want to focus a little bit while we're talking about place on the work that you've been doing in the Blue Mountains and regional Central West area. I first came across your work at the first cementer. Yeah, now that's a really intense place and people experience. Um, and there's a lot of hiddens in cementer because it's such a remarkable place. 
the place is just full of like um, art people. It's like Sydney descends on this small town. You've got small town people interested in the art as well. And yeah, so the UFO took a bit of a collaborative effort to install in the yard. You know, it's huge. It's five metres diameter, two, 2.5 metres high. People would go into, into the UFO and that was a good thing because um, there was only a little hole for them to crawl through, but I did manage to entice quite a few people. You could fit, you know, a whole family with ease <laughs> and the art dog went in there and it was just, it was really fun. I think you brought back part of it for the Eco Spirit exhibition with Matt that you curated as well in 2014. Um, but that house is amazing. Yeah, Morton House, and also people would refer to it as Cave House, I think. The Cave House, that's right, yeah, it was mud brick. And Deidre Morton, I think, was one of the builders of the house, and she was a blood relative of Walter Burley Griffin, but she didn't have a strong interest in theosophy, but um, she was a pioneering ecologist, and um, that was also of great interest to me as well and so eco the word eco means both or it's it's home really so ecology and economy as as kind of like overlapping in this concept of home and there I was having to install in someone else's home and I really had fun like um with the story of the house and writing that up into the into the essay that you edited and I think well I mean I guess I'm thinking of the other exhibition that you curated recently um or more recently EDACC um with Matt Blue Mountains at the Toomba kiosk it was a stunning studio because you just walk 50 meters and suddenly you're in like another world where there's a giant waterfall and you're surrounded by lyrebirds and every other you know bird possible <laughs> like they're all singing <laughs> and then you've got tourists you've got this kind of cacophony of like voices from every country in the world just walking up and down yeah I got to work with the cave space in there and um, got the group together and we all collaborated on my piece and so Wayzan did the camera which is a bit unusual for her um well she did the bubble blowing and camera and yeah, Gianni did a camera, so we had two cameras going. And Naomi um, Oliver, she was happy to do the performance with me. Um, I just wanted to commune with the birds and the acoustics. Like, I really had never been so impressed by the acoustics of a place and that witches leap because you've got the waterfall, all those sounds like um, so many birds. And you see the birds too if you spend enough time. And yeah, so Naomi Oliver had a cigar guitar, uh, cigar box guitar rather, and I had a broken violin, but it was really kind of kooky and delightful. And like the birds did chime in and we were wrapped in owl foil. And that created a, like a bit of a problem because like at one point the roll of owl foil just went hurling down <laughs> the hill. <laughs> And then we're all like worried about the bits of elf oil getting into the environment. And oh my God. So then I had massive guilt, like ashamed by my imposition on the environment. Because I also had bubble baths blowing. And I mean, that's 
World Heritage Area. I mean, it's filthy because the water coming over from Witch's Leap is all full of, it's, there's a sign, um, you know, it's full of pollution because of the runoff. And you've got tourists dropping their wrappers everywhere. And um, so what I did to make up for my transgression on the environment there, I, I had a painting that I showed in the, in the space. And it's 180 by one meter. And I collected enough trash to kind of well and truly fill that cubic meter. So I put out all this stuff. Um, if I found alfoil, I got rid of the alfoil. And then there were bits of, um, there were lots of lolly wrappers and drink bottles and rusty bits of metal from I don't know what. And um, yeah, I think I atoned. I think you gave more. And it's interesting though, because the, the documentation of the Witch's Leap work that you're just talking about reminded me a bit of, a little bit of the more recent branching mind gestures work that you're doing, we've done at Cradle Mountain. Are they linked in any way? Um, yeah, I stood behind the camera for this work and I didn't do any of the performance work and I worked with Josephine and um, yeah, we, we just riffed off each other, Josephine and I. I she knew that I was wanting to explore um, telepathy and she was kind of looking at the concept of telepathy in terms of contagion between performer in theatre and audience. And uh, part of that is part of that connection was obviously it also involves the not just the performer and the viewer, but the the context and so um, that's where the title kind of suggests you know the connection with a telepathic connection with the environment through branching mind gestures so there's a lot of trees that we're working with and um, or just situated with there's a lot of snow so again there does seem to be an interest in in water in my work Cradle Mountain of course has a lake so yeah, she came along with me to Cradle Mountain and she put on the white headpiece. So that's when I worked again with the white headpiece. And we also raided the theatre department's gowns for what I thought was a really gothic colonial style dress. So it was perhaps kind of, you know, Tasmania is just so full of ghosts in that it, there's so much kind of trauma and history of colonisation there. There's a lot of material history there, like, yeah, you can, you get a sense of kind of walking back in time, seeing the old buildings. I worked with this theatre dress that resonated with uh, another world, another time. Well, I think it's the photographs or the stills that I've seen so far is beautiful. Kind of really starts to lead into the last section I'd like to talk about, the broader environmental and social cultural implications of this work. Because I know you've been, you've been curating, you've been exhibiting you've been writing book chapters and articles and all sorts around this area for some time now but I guess I'm, I'm just wondering is there some way that you could summarize or describe for the listeners that the kind of the impact that you imagine this type of work can have on the, the broader ecological or eco-social issues that we have um well in some say some ways you just want the scientists to to get on with things and for there to you know, not be anyone talking about anything too ridiculous. But at the same time, it does, it, it just does connect for me. And I do see the connections. It's just, it's my thing as an artist, just working through this problem of telepathy. With the UFO 2.0, I had been reading about 
William James and his experiments with nitrous oxide because it's, you know, people get high on nitrous oxide. People have telepathic experiences. But it's also, you know, one of these things that's used to rev up engines and in cars and in, in flying machines. And there's the nitrous cycle as well. You know, the, the, the emission of N2O into the atmosphere is actually more disastrous for the environment than the emission of carbon dioxide. So I was just wanting to connect all these things and I made four Ouija boards and there's kind of all this iconography of the Ouija's, you know, kind of magic eyes. And um, so I was investigating Ouija iconography. I was investigating the nitrous oxide. I was investigating aviation and I chose to focus on the female aviator, Emmy Johnson. She has popped up in seances and given messages about what's going on from, you know, the other world, which is simultaneously out of space and another world. So I was investigating this audio created by a medium who was in contact. And my grandfather, my actual grandfather, Jack Drinkle, he was a pioneering Qantas pilot. And he actually saw a UFO and he and his co-pilots and people in ground, the ground personnel in Perth also saw it. Yeah, so when you see a flight anomaly, you have to report it. And um, it's just something flying double the speed of anything that was known to fly at the time. And it was as big as a um, football field. And that's, yeah, pretty much the only weird experience he ever had. But it was also seen by other people. Did knowing that inform the earlier UFO works? No, I, well, maybe it did. But the UFO, that was meant to kind of be a bit of a lab that, could be used to um, explore activism. And then, weirdly enough, then when I was building it at Art Space, working on it there, um, Occupy happened. So I got involved with Occupy and installed little bits of it here and there around the CBD where, with the occupiers. And we had a conference as well at Art Space looking at some economic issues that were coming up. Yeah, so that was called Weatherman Ufology. So I was interested in exploring the weirdness of organisations such as the Weatherman activists and how this word Weatherman, how it must resonate now differently with climate change issues. It's an unfinished project, that one. Literally, like, I'm still kind of trimming the, the panels and the concept is evolving and climate change is getting worse. Is there a kind of hope in there that this kind of work or awareness of this work will have some kind of impact? Yeah, so I wrote a paper called Extinction, Extinction Training. And um, so that was the, and it's the, the longer title is um, Psychic Work for Nagathropocene. So I think, yeah, I think we do need to be doing psychic work. Like we do need to be thinking about how to use our brains to fix the world's problems and why, you know, we've got this amazing brain and psyche and spirit and how to channel it to confront the Anthropocene and to negate, you know, um, Bernard Stagler uses the concept of Anthropocene to kind of to, to kind of insist that we don't just assume that the Anthropocene is going to happen, that we try and actually, you know, do the work to kind of confront it and to confront what is it about us humans that has to destroy the, you know, seems to... Been, yeah, is destroying the environment 
and he actually, yeah, he's also someone who's going back into deep archaeology and deep anthropology to look at, you know, what is it, uh, the fundamental human structures of the brain and the mind that have set this in train. He does kind of explore spirit work. Yeah, and I think, yeah, he, through his concept of tertiary tension, there's that, that kind of sense that there's a, there's a, a telepathic thing going on in, in humans that can be useful to the, the problem, you know, working through the problem of the environment, you know, what we're doing to the environment. But yeah, extension training is also this concept. It's, it's you know, a reference to extension rebellion and the extinction process that is happening through climate change and environmental degradation. And um, it's also a concept of, in cognitive behavioral therapy where you have you recognize what is a bad habit and you try and confront it so you might do something like a Pavlov's dog kind of training where you reward yourself when you don't do it or you reward someone else when it's not 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 that bad thing isn't done we have bad habits that are destroying the world and it's about kind of like this process of erasure so I was looking at erasure in deconstruction and and finding a lot of links between that and telepathy. So erasure is a trope of deconstruction as, as is telepathy. And then also looking at more contemporary theories of telemorphosis, which are really focused on ecology.
Thank you.